0: love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we'll be. Uh, the sermon notes in your bulletin you will find uh, very helpful, I hope. Uh, they'll give you some direction as to where we want to go. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 7 through 18, great boldness for the sake of the gospel. As you find that text and find your sermon notes... I will uh, mention a book that I am just reading. Um, this is a, 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 it was called Collected Writings on Scripture. I know, it's a riveting title. It'll keep you up at night. Uh, not really. It'll put you to sleep. Collected Writings on Scripture. It's a theological book by D.A. Carson, who is one of, uh, one of the leading theologians really in the world on the evangelical, um, evangelical side of things. But this is a collection of things that he has written on Scripture and how we view and read the Bible. And there's a section here uh, in his uh, second major section under the heading of Recent Developments in the Doctrine of Scripture. This was written a decade or so ago. But he's writing about a concern, something he sees on the horizon, he saw on the horizon then, and I think indeed we're in this now. Uh, he, he, He has a heading here called The Diminishing Authority of Scripture in Churches. And an extensive treatment of that, he says, I fear that evangelicalism is heading toward another severe conflict on the doctrine of Scripture. That is, sniffing at the wind uh, a decade ago, it seems, he says, as he would f- flesh that out, that even in churches that say they believe in the Word of God and hold high the authority of Scripture, there is slippage. There are questions. Did God really say that? Are you sure? We we you you probably know this. We live in a cultural uh, atmosphere of that pushes theological agnosticism. What I mean by that is that it's it's chic. It's the right thing to to say. Well, in my opinion. Or I'm not sure about anything, but you know, maybe it's like this. For me, Jesus is the answer. That is agnosticism, to step away from certainty. Uh, we live in a, as I say, the culture suggests that to speak with certainty about something is to be arrogant. And so we, we back off of speaking with anything with certainty. I agree, there are things that are mystery, but I'm saying the vast majority of biblical truth, core Christianity don't hedge on a bit. Today, in the text, we're going to find Paul not backing off, in fact, speaking about issues related to biblical authority, his role as an apostle, speaking with authority. What is that? And is speaking with authority the same thing as speaking meanly or or um, arrogantly? Can you speak with certainty and be kind? Well... These are all very culturally appropriate issues and spring from the text today. So I want, to, I want to pray for us, and then we'll talk through a number of things here today, but brace yourself for a, a substantive consideration of this issue of authority, okay? Authority, what is it? Uh, are you against it? Do we question? What authority do we question? How does that work and what do you do with the scripture? So pray with me, please. Our Father, we need your help in this as we embrace the text in front of us and the topics raised by it that seem to collide with culture around us or rather culture collides with the text. Our Father, would would you give us wisdom, would you give us a sensitivity to see and ears to hear? And hearts to love the truth of the Word of God, to love you as the God who gave it. So we invite your work in us now, uh, here, and as we preach this text. Uh, likewise for Pastor Kevin as he preaches at Central Bible Church, Pastor Matt today at Grace. Have your hand on them as well, us, as we come to the text now. In Jesus' name, amen. The sermon notes in front of you have several different elements to them, Uh, a couple items of review. The second, I would just point you to for a moment, last week, our pastoral intern, Nate Ferris, noted that as you come to chapter 10, there is a pivot in the tone of the letter. Indeed, there is. Uh, In the last several chapters, we have seen more of a a conciliatory, encouraging uh, type of a a tone in Paul's comments. Uh, Three sermons we took wrapped around Holy Week, uh, Easter, so on. That dealt with the subject of giving and things like that, proper attitudes and motives with which we give of our resources to the Lord. But you come to chapter ten, and and there's a different tone. There's an urgency. Um, it's not combativeness, but it's being direct. And so, so be aware of that. Paul is Paul is. Is, is, is wanting to embrace a topic that he broached before the earlier part of the book or the letter as we talked about it then and then he he shifted chapter two and following to some other topics but he's returning again and he's going to be in this kind of a tone through the rest of the chapters of this book chapters 10 11 and 12 so so be aware of that and let's not shy away so you come to the paragraph on today's text we'll be looking at specifically verses seven through eighteen, though I want to read one through eighteen here in a moment, but if you look in the middle of that little paragraph that 's intended to just kind of say what the par- what, the, what the sermon is about, I mentioned here in the middle that sometimes god 's people mistake the biblical value of unity to mean that all conflict must be avoided. This is a deal uh certainly. Most of us don't embrace, don't like conflict. Sometimes we run from it. Uh, conflict, conflict, unity. Sometimes in seasons of church, conflict, even for people who are not involved in it, they move on to another church because conflict is present. I think that's unfortunate because sometimes there is, there is good conflict, meaning helpful, wise, needed Conflict. You know this, I think, from other relationships. If there is never a moment where somebody says, "But what do you mean by that?" or "Hold on, can we talk about that?" If that never happens in a relationship, what do you really have? My answer is not much. So, even in in a church family, sometimes it's possible to say, "We love unity." I do too. Unity does not mean that there are that there are never issues to talk about, to clarify. to to press on. So unity, unity must be based on truth. Unity must be based on robust conversation about what it is we are united about. So unity, let's not mistake what it means. Further, New Testament writers, as I note here, seem to have had a different view. Certainly that's true in our text today and other writings. Of course, Jude calls believers to contend for the faith. He doesn't say be contentious for, but he says contend for the faith. So press on these things. Press on issues of truth. And certainly, that I think is what Paul is doing here. I want to read this broader text, Second Corinthians 10, 1 through 18, uh, and, and we will draw a couple of comments from the earlier verses, but spend more of our time on the second part of that. Let's, let's hear God's word then, the word of the Lord, Second Corinthians 10. I, Paul, myself, entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, Let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if we boast a little too much of our authority, there's that word, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. That's very gentle. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. God's word. Let me give you the idea of what's going on here, best we understand it. So First and Second Corinthians are letters written to a church, a specific local church in the city of Corinth. This is right after the time of Jesus coming to earth, dying on the cross, he is our sin bearer. He died in our place on the cross, bore our sins, in his own body on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, someday to return. So in those years that followed, as people begin to hear this message of Jesus, the story of the gospel would, would continue to spread. And Paul and his friends, as described here in verse 14, they brought the gospel to the church at Corinth. Okay, Now, they were there for a period of time, 18 months, it would seem, from elsewhere in other uh, of, of Paul's writings. And once they moved on, he wrote letters. It would appear from reading first and second Corinthians a total of four letters most scholars would think two of them God did not see fit to have us have in the text. Uh, he kind of let those go, but first, what we call First Corinthians and second Corinthians included in in scripture. Now, after Paul and his friends left, they 'd been there a while. They were known. They were the ones who preached the gospel. They moved on, went other places, and somewhere along the way some other people came in who found themselves maybe contradicting what Paul said or saying, you know, he was a great guy, but he's not here anymore. And things begin to shift a bit, undermining the apostle Paul. He didn't know all that much. Come on now. Who did he think he was? And begin to build themselves. You know, I've got a pretty good resume here. And Paul isn't the only one who speaks for God. I speak for God, too. He has no more authority than I do. Who does he think he is? Those kinds of things. Paul gets wind of this elsewhere, and he shows up in this letter. This is him saying, hey, I hear some things. And he writes a letter to address them. And I find it very interesting. I've given you three headings here that will, will give some direction to cohesion to where I want to go. Uh, you'll notice is with each of these three headings, I did not give you today uh, like the verse breakdown, like verses you know seven through nine or ten through twelve or something, because the text does not really lay out that way. These are themes I think that run through the whole text, but I think they will serve us well in understanding what's going on. Paul wants to address what's going on so i have under my first heading then gospel kindness includes appropriate confrontation gospel kindness includes appropriate confrontation sometimes i think in our world uh, this the cultural pressures we feel speaking truth is is sometimes viewed as maybe not being too nice. Now, Grant, you could say it in a way that isn't too nice, but to speak truth. Uh, we're, we're, again, we're taught by our culture around us to say, well, you know, I probably shouldn't say something, but, you know, I just, I don't know about this over here, and other people see it a lot of different ways, and who's really got a claim on truth anyway? But in my humble opinion, this. But, but it's okay if you don't like it. And we take a long time to say, wait a minute, the Bible says this is true. We, we just wouldn't say that anymore. It would sound almost rude. But this is, folks, this is foreign to the Bible. Appropriate confrontation. I don't mean by that, um, of course, being mean. I don't mean that. But I want you just to, to let that percolate on your heart just a little bit. I want to point out some things. Verse 1, one of the reasons I wanted to read this, I think he's quoting here. So he says, I who am humble when face-to-face with you and bold toward you when I'm away. I don't think he's making that up. I don't think he's just saying that about himself. In my humble opinion, I think he's quoting his detractors here. I think you can throw some air quotes on there. I'm the one, remember me? I'm the one who, when I'm face-to-face with you, I'm really humble, I don't say much, but I get away from, I write these scathing letters. Remember, that's me, here I am. I think this has a quote around it, and I know that verse 10 does. Because as we read it, it says, but they say, and they quotes him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. I think this, this kind of, it's fu- kind of funny in my opinion. <laughs> Picture this as a letter being read to a church because it was, you know, they didn't just like all show up Sunday morning at Corinth with their Bibles. Okay. So they're going to meet and somebody says, Hey, I got a letter from Paul. It's called, uh, you know, Second Corinthians. Well, it probably wasn't. It was a letter from the Apostle Paul. So they're going to have a, a church gathering, and he's going to say, well, here we go. Let me just read this to us. Nobody knows what it's about. So he's reading along, and he says, well, there are those who say that his bodily presence is pretty weak. Well, the person who said that's probably sitting in the room. And everybody probably knows who it is because he's been saying this or she or they or whoever it is has been saying this in the church you don't need to listen to that guy i mean come on he's just this guy i mean, paul he shows up he's kind of kind of weak and wimpy um his speech i mean in a in a world that valued rhetoric the greek world rhetoric was a big deal the guy isn't good at it that's the accusation so as this letter from paul is being written i can just imagine people kind of going he's talking about him right or them, or that Sunday school class, or that small group. Those are the people passing all this stuff. He just quotes them. Can you imagine? Now, to Paul's credit, so to speak, he doesn't mention their names, but I think he could have. Isn't it interesting, then, as now, sometimes people say things and think nobody will ever quote them. Careful what you say. Somebody will probably pass it on, maybe anonymously, but maybe not. It'll get back. It'll show up. Well, these people are saying things about Paul, and Paul says, I hear you. And he calls it right out. Very appropriate that he does so. Hey, there's an elephant in the room. Could I just say? And he does. Well, is that kind? Is it nice? Come on now, think about this. Some would say that wasn't very nice. I would argue that it's very kind to speak the truth. It's very kind. Now, I realize there's a difference in style, okay? In the room here, some of you are flamethrower people. If you were in the army, you'd be the flamethrower. When there's a problem, you light it up. You say Your personality says, I'm not going to pussyfoot around. Here goes. And, and the room is on fire. It's you throwing the stick of dynamite. In. You don't fish with the trolling slowly. You're the one who throws the stick of dynamite in and the dead fish float to the ceiling, or to, to the top, and you scoop them up and say, what's so hard about fishing? This is you, and you know who you are. Um, When there's conflict, you say, oh, man, you're you're loving this part about confrontation. You eat this stuff for breakfast. Yep, buddy, and you're looking around for things to confront. That's you. That's your personality. God bless some of you, and good luck to those of you who are married to such people. Others of you are so much the other way that it's kind of scary. That is, you, you know, there's something to be addressed and you spend so much time saying, I realize this might be a really hard conversation and not everybody's going to see everything the same way. And it's really important. I hope this is a good time to talk. I know it's only 10 o'clock in the morning. And we all probably should have, and before long, the person's going, what is it you're trying to say? I have no idea what the problem is. So some of you are that and some of you are over here. Some of you are going, I love confrontation. Let's go. And other of you are going, no, 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 no. Back away. You know, let's put the gloves back on. Let's be gentle. I realize we're coming to it differently here. But my point, though, is gospel kindness. Please hear both elements addressed. Gospel kindness includes appropriate, put the flamethrower down, confrontation, step up. I'm wanting that phrase to address both sides. For those who love it, maybe too much, and those who are afraid of it. Appropriate confrontation that says, hey, wait a minute, we should talk. Now, the issues, as I mentioned here, are public. Verse seven, Paul begins that text by saying, look at what is before your eyes. In other words, this is happening all around you, and I'm just gonna say it. So open your eyes. This is happening right in front of you. And he begins addressing the detractors. If anyone's confident he is Christ, right here, he steps right into the things that his detractors are saying about him. And he goes, right for it. Here are things people are saying about the Apostle Paul. Paul would say, so let's go. Here are the quotes, let's talk. Now, I think this is profoundly kind. The issues are, are, are very public. I put on your sermon notes here a question that is borrowed from the community group notes because I think it's a good thing to talk about. Uh, what things should or should not be confronted? I think that's a good discussion. There are some things to let go and there are some things to not let go. And you know this, if you've ever raised kids, could you imagine if you confronted every eye roll, every, every door that was shut just a little too hard? Can you imagine if this was a big moment in your house? Every time, every time there was something, you take it on. You're gonna be fighting all the time. So there are moments when you say, let that go. Let you have teenagers? You ever had teenagers? You confront everything at your house, Holy smoke, your kid is never going to leave the room, their room. They're going to be st- grounded forever until Jesus comes. So you can not confront everything. You know this in a marriage, too. There are things you just say, uh-uh, let it go. Come on, right? <laughs> Don't say it out loud. I realize. It's your spouse kind of going, Ugh, yeah, let all kinds of stuff go. Yeah, no, there are things you let go, but there are also things you say, can we talk about that? Isn't that true? It's true in every relationship, and it's certainly true here. What things should or should not be confronted? You get to talk about that. I'm suggesting here, your third little bullet point, confronting error can be done in a non-combative way. Uh, We don't need to go out picking a fight. I'd like you to look with me at verse 8. You see Paul's motive here? He isn't a flamethrower. He says, even if I boast a little too much of our authority... Uh, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you. He says, if, even if I boast a little too much, I won't be ashamed. He defines the purpose of the authority God has given him. What is it? It's to build up. So even in confronting, please get this, dear people. Even in confronting, Paul's purpose is building up, not destroying. His goal is change minds and changed hearts, not just smacking people with the truth honestly, if you think about this, the easiest thing for Paul to do at this moment would be to say, that guy and that guy or that gal, they said the following, kick them out of the church, close the doors, and let's move on. That's the easiest thing to do. Toss them. That's not Paul's point. He says, no, my goal is to build you up, not to destroy you or anybody in particular. That's what the purpose of that apostolic authority is. It's to build, not destroy. He's not just about running around uh, slapping people with truth. These things are really important. Uh, Gospel kindness includes appropriate confrontation. Now, I want to move to my second area here today. Gospel truth in Scripture carries God's authority. The word authority is mentioned in verse 8, and I want to think with you about that just a little bit. Gospel, truth, and scripture carries God's authority. Now, you have heard me say, if you're part of the Sunset family, describing the Apostle Paul, that he was what I would call a capital A Apostle. This is so important. I'm just going to say it again. Until Jesus comes, you're going to hear it again, I promise. Because words are used in the Bible in different ways. And the word apostle is one of those. The word, of course, that is used in the Bible means a sent one, and indeed, it is used broadly of people who were sent on things. And you, if you, if you read things or you hear people preach or speak on TV or the radio, sometimes these waters are really, really muddy. And here's a distinction you need to know. Okay. Just because the word apostle is used in a whole bunch of different ways doesn't mean it's used the same everywhere. Cause you'll hear this today. Oh, here's so-and-so's called an apostle. They're called an apostle. There are all kinds of apostles. Well, it's used in at least two ways. One is in that general sense, small a apostle, a sent one. So if I send you to go get my pizza, in a sense, you're a sent one. Hey, he's the apostle of pizza. That's pretty cool. Well, you're just sent to get the pizza. It doesn't mean like you spoke with authority. Just go pick it up, okay? You could use the word. He's an apostle for that. Uh, he was a sent one. You'd show up at the pizza store and say, order for Jay. And you'd, off you come. you're a sent one on my behalf. So in fact, in the Bible, there are places that the word apostle is used like that, sent on a task. That's not how Paul is viewed. It's not how Paul views himself. He's not picking up pizza. He's speaking with God's authority. I call that capital A apostle. There is a small number of these the apostles and prophets, uh, the book of Ephesians talks about the apostles and prophets found the building, the foundation of the church. The church rests on the authority, authoritative speaking and writing of the apostles and prophets. Paul is pressing on his authority here in these latter chapters of Second Corinthians. You go to chapter 12, verse 12. Certainly you see this as well. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. He's contrasting himself with these false apostles with others who did not have apostolic authority he says i speak for god now i want to drill down into this with you all for a couple minutes okay the question of who speaks for god is a significant and repeated topic in scripture who speaks for god and how do you know It is incumbent on God's people to have an answer to that because we live in a world of competing voices. A lot of people who claim to speak for God, including people who have titles like clergy, who claim to speak for God. So how do God's people know? That's what I'd like to think about with you very specifically for a couple of moments here. It's stepping in a sense into systematic theology for a moment, even outside the text. This to- larger topic stepping back to the whole corpus of scripture for it. I'm giving you three examples here that I'd like you to think about. These are three among many, but I think instructive for us. So first... Adam and Eve versus Satan in Genesis 3. You're aware of how the Bible is laid out, Genesis 1 and 2, God's perfect world. Genesis 21 and 22, future, God's perfect world. And in the middle, Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, is the story of the fall of mankind into sin and God's story of redemption playing out. So perfect world, the story of redemption, and then God's perfect world again. Now, that pivot point in Genesis 3, this is the moment when Satan, familiar with the story perhaps, when Satan addresses Adam and Eve and says those fateful words that have reverberated down through history and still are here today. Did God really say? And off we go. Did God really say that? Thus introducing doubt, questions, and ultimately a step away from faith. Did God really say, in this case, did God really say that was wrong? Did he, I mean, did he really say that? Maybe he didn't really mean that. Maybe what he meant was this. Maybe God wasn't good when he said that. Maybe God was keeping good from you. That's the heart of Genesis 3. Did God really say? And then Satan says, no, God actually was keeping good from you. Did God really say that? That question has been asked for a long, long time. Adam and Eve, as you know, went right down that little garden path and entered the entire world into sin. By the way, if anything is broken in your life, you can can credit that moment and the question, did God really say? And if you think that your life and the world is just wonderful the way it is, then you apparently don't have a problem with that. But Genesis 3, did God really say the broken world is what we've gotten as a result, including your brokenness in mind? Did God really say that he's withholding good from you? Wow, you should break God's rules. He doesn't have your good at heart. That was Genesis three. Now, that's an interesting moment. Hang on to the question. Did God really say, who speaks for God? Miriam and Aaron. There's a story recorded in Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron versus Moses. Moses was God's prophet at the time. Remember, you don't really find that word used necessarily of Moses, but it sure is in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews describes Moses as the great prophet, Christ, a greater prophet than Moses. But there's a moment in, in Numbers 12, if you read the story, when Moses marries somebody that his sister and brother didn't think he should have. It says he married a Cushite woman. Some have con- conjectured that that was a woman of color. Might have been some other things going on there, but enough to say his sister and brother didn't think he should have gotten married like that. And they ask the question, has God spoken only through Moses? Who speaks for God? We know just as much about this as as Moses. (laughs) Who does he think he is? What I have to say is equal to what he has to say. Who says Moses speaks for God? You see this? The, the, the great equalizer. Uh, we live again in an anti-authoritarian age that says, well, you know, whatever you said is just your opinion. That's ripping the heart out of the scriptures. I mean, do do you know how you're going to get to heaven? Or is that just somebody's opinion? Could I ask? Is just your opinion? Or, or would you look at the scripture and say, thus says the Lord? And I hope you're confident enough in your faith to say, yes, I plan to be in heaven someday because I read the Bible and it tells you how to get there by trusting Christ as your savior. The Bible says this and I rest my faith on this. It's not, it's not just like, I feel that today. Well, I sure hope it works out. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but who knows? Hold on. You've been, don't, don't let this world rob you of certainty in your faith. The Bible says it very clearly. One who trusts Christ as his Savior or her Savior is born again, has passed from death to life. The Bible says it. Wow. Take it to the bank. Numbers chapter 12, God speaks on this issue of authority. Moses Moses is God's prophet. Miriam and Aaron are in trouble. They're in trouble with God. Miriam would appear to be the ringleader. In fact, God strikes her with leprosy. And says, Hey, Miriam, you want to get rid of that? Go to your brother Moses. Remember the guy you're not so sure about? Have him pray for you. Imagine the humbling of that moment. Moses, a little help here. Well, sis, I'll talk to him on your behalf. And he does. Now, there's another pretty cool story. Again, who speaks for God? Ab- Ahab and Jehoshaphat in 1 Kings 22. This is, this is a cool story. It's a lot of fun, but, but it's also very fitting to our culture and it presses questions. So the, the, the short story is this. You should read the whole thing in, in, the, in the Bible. You can find it there. Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they're both kings. Ahab is the king of the north part of Israel it's called Israel, 10 tribes in the north. Israel split at the time, uh, southern, you know, the southern and the, the northern parts. Jehoshaphat is the king in the south. He's generally a good guy. Ahab is not a good guy. Well, they have a common enemy. It's called the king of Syria. There comes a day when Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, hey, you wanna join me and go fight against the king of Syria? And Jehoshaphat's going, well, maybe that's a good idea. He is a bad guy and it's better if we fight together. So uh, Ahab, bad guy, Jehoshaphat, good guy. Well, guess what? Uh, they decide they should check in and see what God thinks about this, so they find 400 clergy. That's my term. The Bible calls them prophets. 400 of them. I mean, that's a quite a few. That's more than three. 400. 400. And they ask him, hey, should we go up and and do battle here against the king of Syria? And the 400 voices, it's 400 to zero. Yes, you should go up. You, You will conquer. God is with you. Go. 400 clergy people who say they speak for God. Imagine. I mean, isn't that pretty good? Except there's that moment. Where Jehoshaphat says, well, this is okay. Uh, I like 400 to zero. Is anybody here who's a clergy, a prophet of the living God? Anybody here in that category? Any, is there an evangelical in the room? You just imagine. Uh, Ahab says, well, there's this one guy, but I don't like him because he never says good things about me. <laughs> Jehoshaphat says, oh, it'll be fine. Call him. So they get Micaiah. Micaiah comes in and he, he's, he's sniffing the room. He knows what's going on. They say, hey, Micaiah, we're thinking about going into battle and 400 of these clergy people have all said it's a great idea. What do you think? This is a moment where you have to read between the lines. Micaiah speaks with biting sarcasm. It's wonderful. He says, oh, sure, go up in battle and succeed. And they can hear it in his voice. Ahab says, how many times do I have to tell you to only speak what the Lord says in my presence? Micaiah says, no problem. I saw the people of Israel scattered on the mountains. They were sheep without a shepherd. You picking up what I'm laying down? Oh, go to battle, but you're not coming back. Ahab says, see, I told you he wouldn't say good things about me. It's 400 to one who speaks for God. And can you tell the difference? 400 clergy people, 400 prophets, so-called, all say the same thing, united voice. They all agree. And none of them speak for God. I think about this, because every now and then, I hope you pay attention to this stuff. My goodness sakes. You'll hear about this. There was a consortium of clergy who gathered in Washington, D.C. to declare this. I don't care if there are 400 clergy of anything. Is what they said in accord with Scripture? That's what I care about. So don't tell me, well, they're clergy. It must be right. How stupid is that? It's right out of first, I'm sorry, that's stupid, doesn't usually fit in sermons, but it is. First Kings 22, it's 400 clergy people who weren't speaking for God. So they all go back to Washington, D.C. and say, what do you think on this issue? And they, oh my goodness sakes, here's this on this cultural issue. Somebody should look around and say, well, thank you so very much. Sit down, please. Does anybody here speak for God? And find the one. In this case, there was one, Micaiah who spoke truth for the living God. I, I hope that we are not so foolish that we think that God's truth is determined by, by majority vote or by the swing of culture. Who speaks for God? Do you know? Do you know? How would you tell? By, by, by what they look like? Do you tell by the intensity of their voice? The inflection? How well they're dressed? Is that it? How do you know? Hmm. Paul was very aware he spoke with God's authority. I want, to, I want you to hear him. Uh, there's some places when Paul speaks, to use an old analogy, where he uses the flat of the sword, sword fighting days. There are other places he uses the sharp part, where it cuts. Galatians 1, he uses the sharp part, where it cuts. I want to read some. This is the authority that he knew he had as as an apostle of Jesus. So this is a thus says the Lord moment. Galatians 1, starting at verse 6. Paul knows he's speaking with God's authority. He says, I am, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul would say here to the churches in Galatia, we came to you and told you the story of Jesus, that Christ died on the cross for your sins. He bore your sins. He, he paid the penalty for you. He died on the cross in your place rose again from the dead bodily on the day we celebrate his Easter, ascended to heaven, is going to return. We preach to you the gospel, and it's by trusting Christ as your Savior that you get to go to heaven someday. Okay? And if somebody comes along, even if it's us, and issues a retraction or an addition or in any way messes with that, he says then, verse 8, if anyone, if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, or anathema is the term. You hear this from the Pope every now, and then, anathematizing something. The word literally means damned, the word that your mother told you not to say because you used it incorrectly. Used correctly, it means something. It means sent to hell. That's what it means. That's why you don't throw it around casually about somebody who's an idiot driver, okay? No, it's serious stuff. Here, Paul uses it for those who would try to tell people something that would keep them out of God's heaven. That person should go straight to the pit. See, they're, they're gonna, if, if people believe what that person says, they're gonna be kept out of God's heaven. And so Paul is very, very strong in this. Say, wow, that wasn't very nice. Was it kind? Oh, you'd better believe it was kind because he's pressing on truth. Similarly, verse nine, just in case you go, Paul, I'm not sure you really meant what you said. He says, as we said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. He says it twice in case you missed it the first time. It's that serious. And so he goes on, am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please man, humans, that is? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not human. It's not a human's gospel. Nobody invented this. It wasn't invented around a campfire years ago with a bunch of people beating drums. No, in fact, he says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. This is apostolic authority. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his claim to apostolic authority. I received the gospel, not at a Sunday school class or a day camp. God gave it directly to me. Then he tells later in this book how he went up to Jerusalem and said to the the folks there, here is what I received from God. Is this what you preach? Now, people in Jerusalem said, yes, it's exactly the same gospel, had the same source. Paul had authority as an apostle. I get very bothered these days. If you read things that I read, there are those these days on a whole lot of cultural issues who try to draw a difference between Jesus and Paul. You ever heard this? Jesus was nice. He loved everybody. Paul, he was like this cranky old bachelor guy. Man, he just kept zinging. I'm not sure about Paul. I like Jesus, but not Paul. The Bible does not give you that option. Okay, if you were taught this, if you hear this, if you read that in somebody's argument, well, that was just Paul. What do you mean it was just Paul? He spoke for God. And if you have a problem with the Apostle Paul, I'll say it real clearly, you have a problem with God. No, it was through the Apostle Paul that God gave inspired scripture, authoritative scripture. If you don't like what Paul has to say, you're not liking something from the mouth of God. God. So you, you get to wrestle with that. Don't don't give me this, well, there was Jesus, I like him, he hugged people and kissed babies, and then there was Paul. He got kinda of, no, 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 no. Jesus the Savior, Redeemer, and Friend. Paul the apostle spoke for God. Don't 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 miss it. Great boldness leads to an evangelistic heart. I'm back in Galatians. Uh, sorry, Galatians. I'm back in Second Corinthians, chapter ten. I want you just to see this final movement in the text. In the middle of here, this middle paragraph, Paul is really pressing back to the people that are his detractors. Uh, this quotation he gives: "You guys don't think I speak well? That's just fine." Uh, and, and he's pressing at them. He's talking about him in verses eleven and what follows. Let a person understand this. You know, don't worry. When I show up, I have plenty to say. You guys have your own resume. You commend yourselves. Paul says, well, I've been commended by the living God. That's his claim to fame, if you will. Verse 14, he says, we were the ones who brought you the gospel in the first place. You are our territory. It is from us that you heard the gospel of Jesus. These other guys showed up later. Can you not figure that out? They showed up later to twist what we said. We were the ones who taught you the gospel to begin with. He says in verse 15. It is our hope that as your faith increases, watch this, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. In other words, as you grow up in your faith, I hope you'll recognize the authority with which I speak. That's what that verse is about. As you grow up in your faith, I hope you will learn to tell who speaks for God. That's the point. I hope you'll figure it out as you grow up in your faith. When you're young in your faith, you sniff around and you're not really sure of who's talking for God. But I'm praying, Paul says, that as you grow up in your faith, you will hear the voice of God speaking through him and you'll understand apostolic authority so that, he says in verse 16, we can preach the gospel of lands beyond you. We want your place to be a preaching center. We want the gospel to go forth from your church. But right now there's a big question about, is there a biblical authority here? And may I just say this, in a church where biblical authority slips, you know what's going to happen within a generation, probably sooner? Evangelism and missions efforts go right out the back door. Did God really say, and who speaks for God? All of our opinions are the same. You know, the Bible says this, but I'm not so sure. You know, when that, when that takes place in a church... Very, very quickly, evangelistic efforts just go away. Why? why? If you're not sure of anything, why would you pass it on what you're not sure of to somebody else? Hey, join me in not being sure of anything. That'll sell. Yeah, of course evangelism goes away. Paul would say gospel boldness leads to an evangelistic heart. I want, you, I want to direct you to that place that I, as I head toward a close through that bolded statement there. God's people have always had to discern truth based on scripture in the midst of competing voices. We are in a myriad of competing voices today. Who do you listen to? From what streams do you drink? When those voices say, did God really say? My question to you earlier, how do God's people know the truth? Dear people, can you come right back here? Acts chapter 17, I give you the reference. That's the story, familiar to some, uh, comments about the church at Berea who are commended because they searched the scriptures diligently to see what things were true. Is this you? Do you search the scriptures diligently to see what things are true? I'm saying to us that is the only way to tell us something is right or not is you get right back to this book. Did God really say, I hope you know what God really said because it's right here. Now, I go to the bottom, second bullet point and my close is there. Hebrews 5.14 describes Christian maturity as having discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It is not always easy to distinguish good from evil. Christian maturity, handling of the word of God, knowing God enough to say that that sounds like it came from him and that didn't call for discernment. Call for discernment. Well, there's more we could say on this, and we will in the weeks ahead. Okay? There's more to come. Next week, of course, you see our sermon title at the end of your notes there, Grace Without Truth is Dangerous. We might chat about that next week. (laughs) I'd like to pray as we wrap up. Would you stand with me, please? Let's commit this to the Lord. Our Father, as the Apostle Paul defines the authority you gave him, he says it was for building people up, not destroying them. And I pray that even as we carry into this lost and dying world and in our conversations with one another, we carry truth. Our Father, I pray that we would have as our motive the building up, the redeeming, not destroying, not tearing down, not just getting rid of. But our Father, would you give us a deep love for one another? and for this lost world, and the kind of love that is motivated to speak truth. Yes, grace and truth wedded, powerful together. Thank you, Father, for this church family, Sunset Bible Church. Thank you for what you're doing here, for the passion for your word that is evident. A love for you, thank you for this. Bless us this week as we pray together in this week of prayer, National Day of Prayer. Thank you for this. Thank you for today, in Jesus' name, amen.